Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagram Radian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. On Friday afternoon, we had the honor of talking to Mike Brown, the director of the Defense Innovation Unit, in what was his final interview before stepping down from his post. Before taking the job four years ago, he was a longtime Silicon Valley innovator with a long string of successes to his name, most recently leading Symantec. Bringing a fresh commercial industry approach to the job, he won plaudits for helping improve Pentagon engagement with the high-tech and venture capital communities and helped identify solutions to big and little national security problems. He will remain in the national security space through his work with Stanford University, as well as the Center for a New American Security and other venues. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Here's our exit interview with Mike Brown. Mike, honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me today. Um, I, I want to start off. You, Eric Tuning, uh, Mark Espers, former uh, chief of staff, he's now at McKinsey, uh, and Panvit Singh of the Brookings Institution, wrote a fascinating and I think was very important piece uh, when it came out in April 2020 uh, about the marathon nature of the competition with China. You know, Mike Pillsbury has been one of uh, the many voices talking about the nature of this competition uh, for uh, a long time. And, and increasingly right. now we're back to a more intense competition with, with Russia. Uh, and the, your case was the vital importance, almost the existential importance of moving faster. Um, that was two years ago. And for many, it's not abundantly clear whether we're moving any faster than we need to be moving. Are we moving as fast as we need to be? If not, what do people have to bear in mind to spur them to more urgent action across the entire national security ecosystem? Well, I, I don't think we're moving as fast as we need to be. And uh, the competition is increasing as uh, China has continued to narrow the gap in terms of their technological capability in a number of different important technologies for national security relative to the U.S., so we take no comfort in that. Uh, we have to ask ourselves, what is the forcing function for that uh, to close that gap or move faster? And I think uh, we have to go back and examine just how we bring in new capabilities into the department. So in many cases, it's the same way we've brought them in since the McNamara era. And I'm glad to see that the PPBD Commission uh, uh, is going to be taking a look at that because I think one of the biggest impediments for us is not the desire to go faster. Uh, most of us in the Defense Department want to move at a faster pace, but the ability to move money to get things started takes a very long time. It takes you know two and a half years to program a dollar of spending at DOD. That is the single biggest impediment for us these days. You know, people have a tendency of saying, "Well, you know, I wouldn't want you know I wouldn't want to be them. I don't want to. I wouldn't bet against the United States." Um, nobody wants to bet against the United States, but again, the Chinese have had access to our technology, stolen a lot of technology, indeed gone to our universities uh, and gotten degrees, worked for American industry, led you, you know, foreign companies in China and are now working for Chinese institutions. How do people need to think about China as a first order technological competitor, right? I mean, in quantum communications, they're doing some things that are surprising us or whether it's in hypersonics or any other field. And your point is right. Uh, we can't assume that we're going to be superior in technology. There are already technologies where they have either uh, taken the technology further or fielded more uh, 
uh, former uh, Vice Chairman uh, John Hyten was on the record as saying, many more hypersonic tests done by China than by the US so far. So in that type of environment, we have to think about what new are we bringing? What element of surprise? It's why uh, uh, Admiral Selby, who's the Director of uh, Office of Naval Research and I have advocated for what we call a hedge strategy. We need a hedge to the large platforms. As you point out, China's stolen a lot of our platform designs. They've certainly studied how we go to war. What are the operational concepts that we feel? So if you're going to war with a peer competitor and one that has stolen your designs and studied for decades how you go to war, you need an edge. And we think part of that edge is what surprise can we field? That means a commercial technology because that can be fielded more quickly. Uh, and that can be a hedge to the large platforms uh, that we've fielded for so many years. And we need to start experimenting with those concepts and make sure we're developing some new ones that will bring surprise. And a good example of where that's happening right now is Task Force 59 of the Navy. They're looking at all of the autonomous uh, capability right now in air, on the surface, and below water, and saying, what of those are additional capabilities I might want to field that will span the incredible distances of the Pacific? And how could I view that as a network of sensors to really understand an operating picture of what's happening around me much broader than what I might be able to see from the ship I'm on? It's a perfect example of the head strategy in practice. You know, there were uh, 12, uh, you know, a dozen technological uh, areas, uh, if I'm not uh, mistaken, where we're trying to better tap uh, commercial markets, become a, a faster adopter. Uh, at the end of the day, there's so much investment, and I want to get into the venture capital part of uh, this equation in a moment with you, because you're somebody who both both of was scarred in that process, but also was able to work very effectively in it. And indeed, one of the things you're trying to do is better harness uh, that commercial investment to uh, national uh, gain. As you look at all of these sectors, right, and there's a tendency of saying, uh, you know, of all of these sectors, the commercial industry will provide more, whereas actually the Pentagon is leading in hypersonics. And, and that's not entirely clear either. The commercial sector is investing very heavily on hypersonics. Indeed, you guys have an RFP that you uh, put out for a reusable hypersonic test vehicle very recently. Mike, how, how is it we need to think about the critically important technologies that are out there how the Russians and Chinese factor in it, right? Where are they in the adoption of some of these technologies? Um, and, and sort of the approach we need to take, because as you said, in virtually every case, we have big platforms, but some of those big platforms will be upset, uh, upset and offset by the Chinese use of these or the Russian use of these technologies, right? How, how do right. we need to be thinking about all of these technological areas and how we manage to harness them to get them applied to military benefit, even if it is not exquisite, faster is better than not at all in this case, right? Well, I think what we're seeing is an increasing amount or proportion of the technologies we need to field in the Department of Defense are being led by commercial industry, uh, AI, cyber tools, autonomous capability. So if we went back far enough in history, there would have been a time when most of the technology we fielded was invented by the Pentagon uh, or uh, developed in cooperation with the prime contractors. So that's shifting on us now. And I don't think we've made the changes in how we think about it or our processes to reflect that. Here's what I mean. Uh, in an era where uh, we've named 14 technologies as important for national security within the research and engineering organization, 11 of those are commercial. How much energy are we putting to make sure we've got enough access to that commercial technology and a process to adopt it more quickly? 
So I think if we spent more energy on how do we influence the $350 billion spent every year in venture capital, that's three times a record uh, S&T or R&D budget the Pentagon is gonna get if we get that from the Congress in FY23, three times. So a much bigger amount of R&D externally, we've gotta be influencing that. And then we need a process to bring that inside. That's why DIU was set up seven years ago. Uh, and we've advocated a fast follower strategy. How can we fast follow the commercial market, which really has to do with understanding who's going to buy that commercial technology. Sometimes that's not well understood in the Pentagon because it's not developed for a specific service. And then making sure we've got the budgeting flexibility to uh, bring that technology in and refresh it on the same rate as commercial companies can refresh their products. I want to get into the mechanics uh, of better harnessing the VC community, private equity community, uh, financial community in, in, in general. But first, I want to ask you about the lessons you're drawing from Russia's war uh, in Ukraine. Kiev, in particular, has been extremely good at out-adapting the Russians, right? I mean, the Russians are, are going to get there because getting your butt kicked has a tendency of sort of sharpening the imagination. But they are harnessing commercial innovation in a very fluid uh, manner, right? And and companies that DOD helped build, like SpaceX, and that then begat Starlink, have proven to be uh, vital as is U.S. assistance. What are the lessons you're drawing from that conflict that should shape how we think about what, you know how we prepare for China, it, Russia, or any other side? It underscores the point uh, we were just making about how much more important commercial technology is than it might have been in previous conflicts. So, where before have you had a single company? be important to a nation's warfighting capability as has happened with SpaceX and Starlink. That hasn't happened before. Where have you seen uh, consumer uh, cell phone video play a role in what might end up being uh, war crime investigations? Because now I could capture what was happening in real time across a broad swath of the country. And now uh, some technology that we worked on at DIU, synthetic aperture radar, uh, that has allowed us to see through clouds at night uh, what the Russians are feeling. Uh, that allowed the intelligence community to be able to predict what Putin's movements were going to be in the face of uh, a lot of disbelievers. And because it's commercial technology to share that with partners and allies and the media. So we could all follow that in real time. That hasn't happened before. So these changes being enabled by commercial technology are changing the character of war fighting right before our eyes. So that to me, gives us a sense of urgency. We need to be adapting uh, the way we think about commercial technology, again, influencing that venture capital that's out there, and then thinking about is our process uh, well-suited to rapidly adopt that commercial technology. You know, we talk about the PPB process, uh, right? Program budgeting uh, and execution, but ultimately the challenge and the problem goes well beyond, right? How merely the department spends money, right? Um, you have been, Ash Carter deserves uh, an enormous amount of credit as defense secretary to make this a priority and to do the outreach. And all of your predecessors have worked really, really hard uh, to do that. You've worked very hard. You have a reputation for unvarnished candor. How would you grade the progress to date? Um, and you're going to have a successor come aboard uh, at the start of the year or thereabouts. Mike, what are we getting right? What are we getting wrong? Uh, and how is it that we need to improve this? And more importantly, what's the time scale, right, in your mind that we have to address this? Because we look at time as being on our side. And honestly, 
it actually might not be. <laughs> well, it might not be uh, because as uh, Secretary Mattis likes to say, the enemy always gets a vote. Uh, so we may not in, be in control of when we're, uh, we're asked to step up in, in a future conflict. Uh, let's talk about what's going well. Uh, we have introduced 100 new vendors of technology uh, in the time period that DIU has been around the last seven years in the face of a shrinking uh, defense industrial base. Uh, we've transitioned 50 capabilities over that time period to warfighters, everything from uh, handheld quadcopters that can help clear a building fast to uh, commercial algorithms that help us see what parts of an aircraft are likely to break next. Let's fix them before they take the airplane out of service to digital wearables that help to detect COVID uh, up to 72 hours before I might even feel it as a symptom. So a wide variety of technologies uh, that we've transitioned to warfighters. And that's the ultimate measure of success for DIU. What got in the hands of warfighters? We've increased the rate uh, of delivering that capability warfighters up to 50%. So of the things we start, how many of those ideas, how many of those solutions actually get fielded to a warfighter. That's a pretty high rate of transition when we look at the S&T community broadly in, in DOD. So a lot of things going well there. Uh, we probably have more activity underway and momentum at DIU than we've ever had, a hundred different projects underway, a whole new portfolio of projects, the energy portfolio, looking at how do we uh, conserve energy better? How do we provide alternative greener sources of fuel since the DOD is the largest energy consumer in the world? But if we look at the scale of what's happening in terms of introducing commercial technology, the vendors that we've brought in uh, those 100 vendors have achieved about 5 billion of uh, follow-on revenue. And if we look at what DOD has bought during that same time period, it would be well over a trillion dollars. So while I'm proud of the success we've achieved at DIU, we have a long way to go. There's a lot more commercial technology that, that we can employ. Basically, the things that we do at DOD, we tend to think are very unique because Often the last part of the kill chain is a kinetic effect. We blow things up. But all of the problem, all of the elements of that kill chain are things the commercial sector deals with every day, sometimes in higher volume. Sensors. How do we feel those sensors? How do we collect the information? How do we analyze that? How do we make a decision uh, faster? Uh, and then how do we communicate about that? Those are all very commercial problems. It's just the last part of that kill chain that is not commercial. So we should be looking at commercial industry for supplying a lot more of the capability that we need in DOD than we are today. You know, one of the reasons why startups move fast is it is existential in a highly competitive atmosphere. Is it that we're just too comfortable? Is it mindset? Is it that we don't look at it as existential or not that existential? I mean, what's um, what should we, you know, what what are, you know, because the leadership is saying the right things, right? And then people in the lower uh, ranks sort of seem to understand that. I mean, where is, is it, is it not enough fear? Is it not enough seriousness? Is it, I mean, do we have to wait until the day after Pearl Harbor or 9-11 to go, boy, you know, we really should have moved fast. I mean, what, what is it? Well, you, would, you would certainly hope not, but I think we are because uh, the department is so large and has such a history, I think we're very focused on the processes that we have in place. Uh, and there is a career cost of doing the wrong thing. So culturally, 
Uh, we're very focused on process versus outcome. That's a huge difference from my experience uh, working in the private sector where I spent most of my career. The private sector is very much focused on outcome because it is existential and a little bit less on process. We're not talking about being unethical here. We're talking about how much process does it take uh, to deliver an outcome. Uh, the other uh, problem is uh, how fast does money move? And the fact that that is uh, separated from department leadership and Congress. So there's reasons for that. Oversight and transparency are good things, but the slow nature of how fast money can move to address a problem, to address an emerging threat, to take advantage of a new technology that can deliver something better, cheaper, and faster uh, is not in sync, uh, meaning, uh, in, in today's environment, competing with uh, China, taking two and a half years to uh, program a dollar of uh, spending is not competitive. New, new capabilities will be on the scene that you couldn't possibly have forecast that you needed uh, two and a half or three years ago. So we really have a system that needs to be moving a lot faster, yet is uh, sclerotic. Um, speaking of sclerosis, I can't believe we're having this discussion in 2022, but I think it's very important to have it because there is a sense that the two sides are still talking past one another. And I'm talking about that on the venture capital side of things and, and the department. Um, as you said, the commercial technology uh, cycles are moving at a blistering pace and venture capital cycles are uh, equally rapid, right? Five years is an average uh, return cycle. If you have a really strategic guide, it might be 10 years. Uh, and some actually have shorter appetites than that, and they have to make a lot of profit. So in that brief time, let's say five years, you have to be 10x wherever yeah, you were. Um, eight months is an eternity, and yet in the Pentagon, I mean, that's an average wicket. It might take you that long to arrange a meeting, uh, depending on who you're trying to, to, to do that with. What is it that folks need to understand in the Pentagon up on the Hill, in the White House, and through the ecosystem on, you know, because you said we have to better harness these cycles, but the VC community looks at the Pentagon and, and the government and goes, you guys just don't get it, right? So, and you've tried to be a key translator in this. How do both sides get this better? Because you're working hard to get them engaged to solve our problems. And yet we don't seem to be gearing in, however selfish we may think and self-absorbed and how much performative, right? Uh, innovation theater is associated with this. What is it we need to be doing on our side to make sure that we harness this community, understanding that profit motive is their fiduciary responsibility, right? Right. Well, I think we need to recognize that the average time to bring in a capability in the Pentagon, nine to 26 years, depending on what how complex is, uh, you know, an anathema to the commercial world. <laughs> uh, companies will be born, uh, succeed and die in that, in that time period. So speed is a competitive dimension. It's not one we've harnessed historically. It's one we're going to need uh, to harness better going forward. The last national defense strategy really talked about the fact that it's unlikely you're going to have an offset or a capability your adversary doesn't have. So agility, the ability to adopt new technology, is probably going to be the key to success. There's a long way we have to go on that. Uh, second, uh, because the there's so much more money available to uh, commercial companies, we have to figure out how are we going to better influence that 350 billion a year that's being spent in the venture capital industry. And then third, we got to demonstrate that sense of urgency by rewarding those successful commercial companies with uh, more and larger uh, production contracts. So in our experiences we talked about, it's happening. 
And I can give you some examples of uh, Andro picking up a billion dollar contract from SOCOM recently for counter UAS, C3 picking up a half billion dollar contract from Missile Defense Agency for some work on a synthetic hypersonic missile trajectories. But I should be able to give you dozens and dozens of those examples. So uh, we haven't uh, yet scratched the surface on applying more commercial technology, which will help us feel capability faster. We can feel commercial technology in one to two years instead of nine to 26 years. Uh, and I should uh, point out our uh, conversations that we had recently with Trey uh, of uh, Andrew as well as Tom Siebel uh, of uh, C3AI, where they uh, discussed uh, some of those contracts. Um, but Mike, how is it you influence the VC guys and better harness them, right? Because ultimately, I mean, I, I hear this from senior officers all the time. Uh, well, you know, they should be doing this and they shouldn't be doing business with China and, you know, entrusted capital and all of this. And, you know, some people even point out um, the statement that Ellen Lord made, right? Well, you guys will have to lose money. I mean, as soon as any VC guy hears that, they don't really want to have a lot to do with you because they're like, look, that makes me vulnerable uh, to my shareholders actually suing me, uh, right? What are some of the messages, how to harness them? Because at the end of the day, these folks are, are taking a risk, making capital available, um, and taking bets and are happy to lose money, right? Um, but how do you convince them to change how they invest to bring you these ideas um, at, the, at the end of the day? Because we're, we're still having a disconnect and some of them are looking at this and going like, boy, this is really too complicated and kind of a pain in the butt. Well, th this is really quite simple and it's using the capitalistic system that uh, we benefit from uh, to our advantage at DOD. It's about creating more competition and moving faster. And the way we do that is uh, DIU is showing the way. It doesn't apply to everything we need in the Defense Department, but it does apply to the commercial technologies. Uh, we simply need to provide more and larger volume production contracts. That starts a virtuous circle going where the investors and the entrepreneurs say, hmm, that looks like that paid off for Anduril or C3. That's a market that we should be going after. So we get more competition in that sense. And then, then uh, we see the investors saying that paid off for the investments we made in those companies. We need to be making some more bets there because it looks like defense is now opening up to commercial technology. So it's really a simple matter of making sure the incentive is there with those larger uh, and more production contracts that's gonna make the investors sit up and notice and entrepreneurs sit up and notice that this is a market that's available to us now using some of the tools that we have in acquisition, leveraging other transaction authorities, something we invented called commercial solutions opening. It's just a commercial process to qualify vendors, allows you to move very quickly and to get capability to the warfighter in one to two years. So we've done it 50 times now. Uh, right. It clearly can be done. We've brought a hundred new vendors in. We just need to be doing this on a broader scale across the OD. Um, there, there is a, a sense that the entire process we use, right? I mean, I think you've you've discussed this, and I think some people know this, right? Is actually anti-innovation, um, right? If 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 you come up with a great idea, right? Brown Industries comes up with a good idea. You bring it. You made the investment. You had the VC money behind you. Uh, you have a better mousetrap. You bring it to the department. They study it. They go, "Oh my God, that's a great mousetrap." Uh, and then they build a requirement, and then they compete it. And then one of the bigger contractors can win it because uh, they have greater price flexibility than you do, right? Do we need to kind of change that model? Go more with, I mean, I know that we use other transaction authorities for stuff like that, but actually get to a model where we had in World War II, 
where actually Brown Industries can be the prime and one of the bigger companies actually becomes the executor of that. And we see that in commercial industry all the time, right? Do, do we need to change that sort of fundamental model on how we think about a good idea and how quickly we get that good idea out as opposed to saying, ah, the good idea now has to influence a 50-year program of record? Absolutely. Yes. That's why uh, we've advocated what we call a fast follower strategy. How can we fast follow what's going on in the commercial world? The elements that are different from what we've traditionally done in defense is you don't need requirements. So as you pointed out in your example, uh, what we do in the defense department, if we saw something is then write requirements and tell the industry, this is what we want, rather than saying, this is a problem we have to solve. I wonder what you would come up with as creative ways to solve that. By writing requirements, we actually limit the competition because we're telling the market what to go build for us. So eliminate the requirements, use some of the modern acquisition tools that we just talked about. And if you were to be able to combine that with more flexible budgeting, I can move money to an emerging threat or take advantage of a new technology that's being developed commercially faster. That's pretty difficult to do in our system today because you got a two and a half year uh, time lag there, an institutional delay in bringing in new capability for warfighters to compete with China. If you could fix that, then you'd have a different system uh, with which to compete that I think would maximize the competition, provide better value for the taxpayer and make sure that the latest technology is in warfighters' hands. There has been some criticism leveled at the Pentagon for investing where VCs won't uh, go. Um, and, and there's a sense that as, if you're a company worth your salt and fogging the mirror, you should be able to attract uh, venture capital. Ultimately, do you think that the department needs to do a better job to even more directly and in more significant fashion put a lot more skin in the game, say in quantum computing, right? Put some $50 million or even bigger bets in. And then, as you said, be the market maker when, when one of these hits. I mean, is, is there a role for that? I mean, sort of a, a, a little, you know, sort of DIU on much bigger steroids um, to, to help sort of more dramatically shape and accelerate some of these outcomes um, in a, on, a, on a more strategic level. Absolutely. Or do you There's think the VC a... model is easier? I think you, we have to live in a world where multiple models exist. The VC model is great for commercial technology and in particular where uh, VCs can make the most money. Recently, that's been in software as opposed to hardware and later stage investing versus early stage where things are riskier. So if you think about that, let's take advantage of that venture model for those technologies. That would be the world of AI today or cyber tools, plenty well-funded. If you move to the hardware world, now there starts to be a role for government to invest in those things that are riskier where venture capital has not gone. The DOD operates on hardware. We can't just operate yesterday's hardware with, right. with the latest software. So for those areas, you need government investment to come in and help make it safe for follow-on investment from private investors. That's why the DIU, we've advocated for what we call national security innovation capital basically a catalyst to bring in private investors for early stage hardware. Uh, authorized uh, a couple of years ago, just now getting funded and, and started. We've now funded 13 companies in that program to date. Everything from quantum sensors to hypersonics to new battery chemistries there. And then there's probably a third type of market, which would be uh, areas where the government can be a first mover, where DOD is still a large consumer. You know, We tend to think we're the 800 pound gorilla uh, so we can dictate things to the market. Well, for many markets like AI, cyber, autonomy, 
we we're not the big the big force in the market. But for some areas like energy, we're the world's largest consumer. If you think about electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, we could be a big market maker there. Space, um, satellites, rockets, uh, we can be a big market maker there. So there we need to be investing early to make sure we get a U.S. and allied industrial base uh, that's going to be important for national security. So I think we have to think about each of these markets a little bit differently. And that means different tools will be required for each one. How do we need to think about programmatic longevity, right? I mean, we get into ourselves into a lot of trouble because we look at everything as like, how long we can keep it around. And I think it's just madness to have effectively um, a mile and a half long assembly line in Oklahoma that rebuilds 1950s airliners that don't exist on the commercial market anymore. Um, I think, well, it's not entirely fair. I think the Iranians actually have one or two 707s that are, they're, they're still flying. Um, how do we need to think about that? And, and actually, you're, you're not being thrifty or making a better use of the taxpayer's money. You're actually being wasteful in some of these cases. It will be cheaper to replace this stuff at far more regular intervals. Do you see any progress in sort of changing the mental calculus here? Um, because it, it's, 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 it's a stupefying amount of money that gets spent on remanufacturing at regular interval things that you arguably would be cheaper if you just replaced them. Yeah, well, I think in general, uh, while DIU works on kind of the different end of the spectrum, which is commercial technology that you need to be thinking about refreshing more frequently, I think if we're able to move the large weapons platforms in that direction, we would be better off. Uh, so we should be thinking about uh, how do I field something more quickly? Taking 20 years to design the F-35, well, there's no way you could have known what should be in that aircraft 20 years ago. The software certainly isn't going to be designed with, with current methods. And then how quickly could you follow that up with a kind of a next generation? That's a different mindset than how do I keep something around for 40 years? So I think in general, if we can shorten the amount of time we keep things, we're going to reduce that sustainment cost, which we know is 70% of the cost of fielding any weapon system. And that's gonna bring a lot of benefit uh, to us in terms of making sure we're fielding something more current. We're not locked into one vendor. We're getting uh, better value for taxpayer dollars. And, and this is all and, about cycle time. Your, your points right. about speed right early were exactly right. And they apply in this area of large weapons platforms uh, as well. If we're moving to faster cycle time, even for our large platforms, we're gonna be better off. And, and manufacturability, uh, right, uh, has made uh, quantum leaps. And indeed, I mean, we're, we're um, you know, software development, open systems, architecture, all of this stuff should be actually be able to move significantly faster. Right. Digital uh, trends. Right. Yes. Digital. Ex exactly. Um, let, let me, uh, we're, we're going to go into a little bit of a, a lightning round. Uh, and I wanted to get your sense on, you know, in QTEL, was a very successful approach, right? I mean, there's obviously mm -hmm. a vast scale difference for what they do uh, for CIA, but I mean, the number of really innovative companies you find has a lot of InQtel DNA in them uh, at, at, at one point. And they're also arguably, I mean, some would argue in the right place in the organization uh, in, in order to shape it. And there's a lot of debate and discussion and getting ready for this, you know, a lot of questions about where DIU should reside in the ecosystem. Um, where should DIU exist in the ecosystem, uh, Mike? And from a resources standpoint, it comes back to that. You know, there's this sense of, oh, well, we don't have to call it DIU X anymore because, you know, innovation is caught on. I, I don't know whether innovation is caught on. Uh, and I don't, 
you know, and, and at some point you need somebody to be resourcing this and be the touch point. Are you in the right place? And are you actually funded the way you need to be funded? Because the big criticism early on when George was leading the unit very early on was it was just inadequately resourced um, and, and inadequately manned. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no question we could do a lot more uh, with uh, more resources. We have the same number of active duty military that we had when Ash Carter formed the unit seven years ago. And that's not from lack of uh, uh, advocating for more resources. I think uh, my departures created some visibility of the fact that uh, we are now dealing with a budget cut in FY22 relative to FY21 enacted appropriations. That wasn't because somebody said, let's cut DIU. It was because the cycle takes so long to develop a budget. 21 was enacted and 22 was already uh, on the Hill in the form of a president's budget request. So this speaks also to the point about we need more flexibility in how our budgeting is done. Uh, the, as a, uh, just as a point of reference, in the uh, fiscal uh, 23 discussions that are already happening on the Hill, uh, the House Armed Services Committee recommended that uh, DIU be budgeted at more than double what it is today. Uh, the Future of Defense Task Force, uh, I think that's from 2020, uh, that the has sponsored said we should be at 10x. Honestly, we couldn't effectively manage 10x a budget of what we have today, but uh, we could certainly do a lot more with, uh, with more resources. And we very much appreciate the vote of conference from House Armed Services Committee uh, recommendations in the NDAA for 23. And uh, just uh, so the audience doesn't have to go look it up online, what kind of budget, what, what is the massive bloated uh, overdone budget that you're giving <laughs> each year, Mike? Well, uh, uh, DIU is actually made up of three organizations. What we've been talking about is really the project part of DIU where we started. We have this small fund to do investment in hardware. We talked about National Security Innovation Capital and then National Security Innovation Network that works with a network of 70 universities, incubators and accelerators and the Hacking for Defense course is part of that. So in total, uh, it, uh, we're about at 100 million today and uh, the House Armed Services Committee was recommending something like a $230 million budget. Um, and I should point out right then when Dwight Eisenhower launched DARPA, he gave it the equivalent, you know, a lot of money, right? So it was an organization that, you know, overnight had so much money that they were taken very, very seriously and were able uh, to, to um, move the needle in a more dramatic fashion. To, to, um, to be honest, more than the money is uh, government billets. So having 20 active duty military, if we could get an increase in that, and we have 23 government civilian authorized billets. That's the more acute need for us because we've never been a period when there's been more demand for what we do at, at DIU. 100 projects underway, more and more parts of the Defense Department are hearing about what we can do and they wanna access that capability. And we'd like to be helping them and providing that, but, but we're limited by the number of inherently governmental folks we have. And how many people do you need? Well, if you kind of, uh, say that uh, when we started, we were 20, we could certainly uh, take advantage of double that. 23 government civilians, again, the same thing would apply where we'd invest most of that addition is in contracting capability. I see across DOD underfunding of contracting folks. We could take good advantage of that. And if we were able to double a 23, we'd have plenty of contracting capacity to expand. Um, let me uh, take you to the question of talent uh, management. Um, I'm, I'm not referring at all. I understand that uh, there's an investigation still ongoing, uh, and I, I don't necessarily want to be uh, d discussing that nor bring that up or put you on a tough spot. 
But at a fundamental level, it appears that time and again, we're not managing talent, retaining talent, acquiring new talent quite the way that we should. Jim McConville, uh, the United States Army Chief of Staff, has been working uh, on you know, better understanding the talent the Army has. Oh, my God, we might have somebody really smart in something we need help in, and they're in a motor pool. They shouldn't be in the motor pool. We should be able to tap that expertise, whether it's linguistics or scientific or otherwise. How is it, you know, you, you bring a lot of experience from commercial industry to how to manage talent, how to acquire talent, how to grow talent. How do we need to think differently about the talent management universe? Because that's the thing that Silicon Valley most prides itself on is an ability actually to manage talent, even if they mismanage talent or over, you know, <laughs> abuse the talent they have. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, it's still about ta- harnessing talent. Well, Vago, you uh, referenced uh, the investigation, which I can't comment on that now because it's ongoing investigation, but focusing on the right talent and making sure we have a process to get the right talent on board is very important to us. First of all, uh, we need a more tech-savvy workforce, so we need to value that. If you're in active duty military, often there's not a way to reflect that in the career fields, and we're not valuing people growing their skills, for example, in the cyber field say that maybe it's better to develop specialists. Not everyone has to develop the general background to be the next uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So there's a huge amount of change that we need to make in terms of allowing for specialties in technical fields and valuing that in terms of uh, being able to promote our officers. Second, we don't have much of a sense of recruiting as I've seen it across the government. Uh, Our attitude is you're, you're lucky to have the government paycheck instead of we're really recruiting you because you bring unique talent. Uh, our whole process is not very friendly uh, to bringing in uh, experienced talent uh, or uh, really making people feel valued, right? Uh, the end of your process of background investigation and can you pass a drug test? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a whole mindset that's completely alien to the, the private world. And then third, our processes to bring people in need to be rethought. It, once we make a decision, we've gone through the recruiting process and we've selected a highly qualified individual, uh, it can take us seven months to go through the paperwork process at the Pentagon to actually give someone an offer. So think about this. We attracted a Rhodes Scholar, PhD in computer science, very well qualified to work in our AI portfolio. Seven months, we asked that person to sit on the sidelines turn down other offers and wait to see if the Department of Defense could generate the paperwork for an offer. That's completely non-competitive. In the private sector, that would happen in 24 to 48 hours. We can't operate that way and be competitive with the challenges we face. And then we put them through an 18 to 24 month security clearance process, right? After they sign the board. Right, my comments have nothing to do with security process. We know that can take a while to get your clearances just to get the person an offer to let them uh, uh, consider coming on board to apply for the security clearance. One of the questions that a lot of folks ask uh, is the difference between actual innovation and innovation theater, right? And there's an accusation sometimes the department engages in this, right? We don't know what to do. So here are a whole bunch of things we're going to throw out there to show how innovative we are. And actually the innovation community looks at that and goes like, wow, that's... (laughs) pointless, um, you know, or is theater. And on the other side, folks look at it and 
you know, you see the sort of guy or gal who sort of failed five times in a row and they're like, oh, you know, they're special. Whereas the community looking and be like, well, they're kind of charlatans actually, which is why this, this happened. What's, what's the trick to sort of seeing past, right? The difference between what's real innovation, what's innovation theater and, and the importance of actually keeping it out of the discussion because then it tends to cloud it, doesn't it? Well, I think uh, the key is what is the outcome we're, we're striving for? So in DIU, the outcome we're striving for is getting capability into warfighters' hands. If we're working on that, it's delivering innovation. If we're having a demonstration, a meeting, uh, someone's uh, talking about what they want to innovate, but there's no action to back it up, that ends up being uh, more of the theater. So I think it's all about outcomes versus process. Uh, we have to recognize that at DOD uh, to really create innovation, we have to be looking more to delivering for those uh, innovators, which I've, we're focused on commercial technology. So that means more and larger volume production contracts uh, for the innovators. And it also means, do we have a process that allows it? Are we, do we have the incentives set up uh, within DOD so that we are asking for more innovation? Uh, the incentives often today are to keep the status quo uh, where that's safer from a career standpoint. So we have to really think about those incentives and are they the right ones to encourage more innovation? There's a lot more work that we could do in, in that area. Um, uh, two uh, last uh, questions. Um, do we need a national uh, net assessment capability for economic uh, technological competition as well as cooperation, Mike, um, that would reside at the White House that would have sort of a broader understanding and an ability and I don't mean to be discharitable because I know that there are people who do this, but there tends to be not as much of a focus. And if you look at what Andy Marshall was doing was um, an extraordinary job. Jim Baker is doing uh, much the same, you know, is trying to do the same mm -hmm. in terms of the Pentagon. But if you look at it, almost any successful organization should have that kind of capability at the top. And it's not particularly clear that we have a net assessment capability at the top, maybe when it comes to these kinds of issues, do, 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 does at a senior level, is there as much visibility as needs to be so our national leaders have a better understanding of where we stand and it's not relying on whether Mike talks to them or not? Well, this goes back to your very first question uh, that uh, the article we wrote on the superpower marathon. Uh, we have to raise the profile in the national agenda for the technology competition that we're in with China. It's going to go on for a long time, uh, maybe multi-generations. And are we making the right investments now uh, for the future? We want to have both for economic prosperity and national security. Many of the benefits we see in Silicon Valley and elsewhere around the country came from investments the government led uh, that came from the space race or the period right after that. Miniaturized electronics, GPS, uh, Internet. Uh, and those were government-led investments. Where are those investments today? During that same time period, federally funded R&D as a proportion of GDP has gone from 2% down to 0.35% for national security applications. So we're not in a profile where we're investing an increasing part of our uh, GDP for the future. I was delighted to see the Congress pass the Chips and Science Act. I think that's a step in the right direction. That is a down payment on what we really need to be competitive for the next several decades. What do you think are the top priority areas that the money needs to be invested in if we are going to, right? I mean, there were a lot of reasons to go to the moon. 
Uh, obviously, it was a battle in the Cold War, and that's how some of the astronauts saw it. Frank Borman certainly saw it that way, uh, the legendary Apollo 8 commander. Um, you know, what are what are the areas where we need as a nation to be making those bigger bets in a way that we're actually not making today? Well, to it's, a variety, range yeah, it's, it's a variety of technologies. It's probably about 10 that span everything from semiconductors to uh, software, AI and cyber, all the way to biotech. Uh, the lists are there. The lists have been produced by the National Security Council uh, earlier in uh, iterations of that uh, same legislation when it was Endless Frontiers it gave you a list. Uh, but we need to now have the political will to invest the money uh, to do that. If we were to get back to the levels of the 1960s of investing in science and technology development across the spectrum, uh, we'd be investing uh, $200 billion more today. It's a big Big investment in the future. But if we look back to the 60s and 70s, it certainly paid off if we look at the successive decades of economic prosperity and it enabled entirely new industries. You wouldn't have, uh, you know, Amazon, uh, Airbnb, uh, you wouldn't have Microsoft or Google if you hadn't made those investments uh, as foundational investments. We're making some today, but I think we need to make a lot more given the the uh, competition we're in, the tech race we're in with China. Mike, I have to say this was an honor and pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us and being so generous with your time. Uh, I've got about 15 more questions, but I'm not sure the audience has the patience for it. And I know your <laughs> schedule won't allow it, uh, but you're welcome back anytime. We would love to continue this conversation with you. Thanks so much. Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Be happy to come back.